I want us to stand and I want to pray this morning as I start. Uh, our scripture this morning is in Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Um, let me tell you what I want us to pray about this morning. And I want to talk for just a second, but you can stand. This is your, this is your stretch your legs time. Um, how does God bring a change in our hearts? Uh, that's where I'm heading this morning. Um, if, if change in my life is something that I have to engineer and work up, then I'm going to be really limited. You're going to be very limited in what you can do. What we really need is for God to change our inner person. Amen? He needs to change us on the inside of our hearts. Uh, let me tell you what I know That God brings about change in our life as a work of grace. It is something that He does. And what we are responsible for when we hear from God to open up our heart to receive that, repent, whatever, whatever we need, to, whatever changes we need to make to acknowledge that. And when we open up our hearts, then we depend upon God coming in and doing a work in our hearts that we cannot muster up or work up. Uh, it has to be a work of grace that God does in our hearts. It is our only hope that he would change us. And so I don't really want to come this morning to say, hey, you've, you've got to do this and this and this and this, and here's a list of moral codes that the preacher needs you to do better. No, we need God to come in. Now, we have to be open to whatever he says, but we need God to come in and do a work of grace. And so let me pray, and then we're going to look at Amos chapter 4. Father, today, uh, we acknowledge that you are God, and that apart from you, we don't even have life. And so, Father, we acknowledge you as the giver of life, uh, and Father, I, we acknowledge that you are the one who restores life. So when life has beat us down, that, Father, you're the one who comes and restores the life that you've, you've given. And so we pray today, as we look to your word, that we would hear you, we would receive that word, we would respond to that word, and as we open up our hearts, uh, that you would do a work of grace in our, our lives that would change us in our inner being. And so, Father, today we pray as we look to your word that is inspired, that is inerrant, that is eternal, that, Father, you would speak and we would hear. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you. In Amos chapter 4, starting in verse 4, This is a, a section of scripture that ends with a famous phrase or verse that we're going to get to. Um, but if you'll hear this morning, Amos 4, verse 4. You can either look in your Bibles or it'll be on the screen. God says to the prophet, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply 
transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. When there were still three months to the harvest, I made it rain in one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. (laughs) Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who formed mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what is his, thought, his thought is, And makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Amos 4, verses 4 through 13. I really want to preach this morning from verses 4 and 5, but I want us to talk a few minutes about verses 6 through 13. In this section of scripture, which is At the very core of Amos' message, God is warning Israel that he is about to judge them for their sin. In verses 6 through 13, uh, God goes through a series of calamities that God said, I have sent these things to you, and and what God's point is, I sent these circumstances in your life to you that I might get your attention, that it might draw you back to myself. But there's a phrase that he repeats five times, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He talked about in verse 6 of, about um, famine. He talks about uh, cleanness of teeth. That means you don't have any meat stuck between your teeth because there is no meat to eat. He talked about the lack of bread. <clears throat> and he uses that phrase, yet you have not returned to me. 
It is significant, and I need you to kind of put this in your brain so you can understand what he's speaking to us spiritually. The word return in these verses is at the very core of all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, I, I don't remember a lot of Hebrew, but this Hebrew word is at the very core of the prophet's message, and it is the, it is the Hebrew word sub. If, I don't know, it's simple, I can remember that one. Um, and it, means, it has the sense of repent. It means to turn around your life. And if you, if you trace this Hebrew word, you can trace it through all of the Old Testament prophets because the message was consistent. I'm going to talk about these things, and the call is for you to return, for you to repent and turn back towards me. And so he says in verse 6 that, uh, I brought you famine, but you didn't return to me. In verse 7, he talks about drought. I withheld the rain, and he talks about raining on one city, not on another. And then verse 8, about having some cities having to go to another city just to get a drink of water. But the conclusion is the same, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 9, he, he brought blight, which is, yeah, kind of... I don't know what blight is exactly, but, you know, it's bad. You don't want blight to come. Mildew. And even when your gardens grew up, the locusts came and devoured them. I did this to get your attention, yet you have not returned to me. I, in verse 10, he, he sends a plague like the plagues of Egypt, and people, men died, and there was a stench because of death in your land. And I did this... I brought this circumstance to get your attention, yet you did not return to me. There's five of these cycles. The last one in verse 11, he even overthrew some cities like he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, I saved you. You were like a firebrand. I plucked you out of the burning. But his conclusion is the same, yet you did not return to me. In verse 12, after all this cycle, you did not. I brought these circumstances, but you did not return. You did not repent. You did not turn back to me. I was trying to get your attention. And that, I, I don't know if any of you knew this, where the phrase, prepare to meet your God, it's Amos. Amos said, you have not returned to me. And what I want you to understand is God's about to show up. And we're about to have a face-to-face -face encounter. And what can we expect except God to deal with our sin? Prepare to meet your God. Uh, week before last, one of my good friend's fathers passed away. And I went to the funeral uh, outside of Wichita Falls. And uh, I was visiting with my friend before the service. And we were just talking and some old memories came up and he said you remember that time your mama whooped me I said, I said I don't remember that here's the thing I got a whooping that day too but I had so many whippings that I don't actually remember any particular one except the last one actually that's another story we're not going to tell that today my friend Scott said no he said that day your mama told us we could go out and play in your back in, in your backyard and he lived down the street from me and that we had a fenced-in backyard, and apparently that day my mama said, you can play in the backyard. And, uh, but behind our house, 
There was a city park with all kinds of playground equipment. It was a wonderland, it, particularly to two little eight- or nine-year-old boys. And my mama said to us, is what Scott said, he said, your mama said, don't go play in the park, y'all can play in the backyard. You know where the story's going. Before Jesus came in my heart, I was B-A-D bad. I got a lot of whoopings, mostly from my mama. Thank you, Jesus, for mean parents. Scott said, we went to play out in the park, and your mama found out. We, we went inside, and Scott said, your mama started whooping you. She, he said, you, he, she grabbed your arm, and she was whooping you like this, and you were running around in a circle. Your, it was one of those whoop-arounds, you know. I don't know what you call it. You know, mama, I was like, oh, mama, you know. Well, my friend Scott started laughing. Mm. Apparently, he didn't know Sandra Smith very well that day. My mama dropped me and grabbed him. He was an only child. I don't think he got a lot of spankings in life, but he did that day. My mama started whooping him. Now, there was a system at my house. Uh, we had a bell on the back porch because we would play in the park. When my mama rang that bell on the back porch, there was only one response. Come now. Might have meant supper was ready. But it could have been something else. I don't know if other neighbors had bells, but we were conditioned. <laughs> we knew what that bell sounded like. And I'm sure if my mama didn't get our attention, she probably yelled out at the back fence. I don't know exactly what happened that day. But I would imagine our mama said, do not go play in the park. You can play in the backyard. Mama went out the back door, did not find us in the backyard. And I'm sure she rang the bell. I don't remember hearing the bell that day, but somewhere I, I know it would have registered in my brain. My mama probably would have gone to the back fence and she would have called for us to come. The only thing I figured, we still didn't come. Now I want you to understand, when my mama finally encountered us in the park that day, and we turned around and I saw my mama, I could only expect one thing was about to happen. And that I was going to be whooped for being, being disobedient because my mother had told me. I'm sure she had rung the bell. And she had come and she had called my name. She had done everything she needed to do beyond some for me to be where I needed to be. But I was not. When I hear the phrase, prepare to meet your God. I think of my mama that day in the park when I came down a slide or I was swinging and I turned around and I saw my mama prepare to meet your God. I could have been death that day, quite honestly, but I survived another day and so did my friend. What would we expect in a life of disobedience? You know what I get from this scripture? God said, I did everything I needed to do for you to come back to me, and you did not. And what the prophet is saying, if you will not return to God, God will come to you, and you can only have one expectation of what he is going to do. 
That's verses 6 through 13 for your edification this morning. That was the pregame. Now to the sermon, verses 4 and 5. Why was God so upset with his children Israel? In the book of Amos, there are a number of reasons that God will say, no, mm -mm. this sin and this sin and this sin. But in verses 4 and 5, God highlights one of the sins, and it was the sin of spiritual or religious infidelity. It's one of the themes. You see it in the book of Amos. There's going to be some other sins, and we're going to get to those. But today in verses 4 and 5, God said, one of the reasons I'm coming to punish you is because you have been unfaithful to your covenant vows with your God. We could call it religious or spiritual infidelity. There was an agreement we had in how we were going to live with each other and I was going to be your God and you were going to be our people. There was an agreement, there was a covenant that we had and you have been unfaithful to that. And if for no other reason, God had just cause to bring punishment to his people. I want you to hear what the prophet says in verses 4 and 5. Um, he says in verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. And there is most of what the prophet says, or God says, is said in a sarcastic tone. And when he says, for this you love, that is dripping with sarcasm. One thing Brother Darrell knows is sarcasm. And that's what is in this, these verses. Oh, you love this. The implication, God says, I don't. The irony of what the prophet talks about and the circumstances in which they find themselves is that the people in Amos's day were very religious people. The sin was not of being irreligious. Actually, their sin was connected to their religion. Now, he, this is what he's saying in verse 4. When he, the, notice he says, come to Bethel and transgress. Bethel, we have to believe, is where the message is being delivered. We know from chapter 7, verse 13, that there was a shrine. It was the king's shrine, uh, a, a place of worship, 
So what the prophet is saying when he says, come to Bethel and transgress, he says, come to the place of worship and sin. Now there's sarcasm there. And not only does he say Bethel, but he says Gilgal, another shrine, another place of worship. Understand that Bethel was the main shrine, holy place, place of worship in the northern kingdom that um, Amos is speaking to. It was a place that had sacred history. And what I mean by that, Bethel was a place where it, it commemorated, it marked a place where God had worked in the past. So one of the places, if you read Genesis, when God calls Abraham to go to a land that he will show him, Abraham comes to Bethel. Well, Bethel is, I know a little bit more Hebrew than I've, brought on, I've alluded to. Beth means house and El means God. Bethel is the house of God. That's what Abraham called that place because Bethel, that location, was the place that Abraham had encountered God and built a, an altar there. And the Jews, for centuries, Bethel is a holy place. That was where our, our great, 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 great grandfather came and God spoke to him there and he built an altar there and he worshiped God in the very center part of the holy land. Do we have the map? Did I get that? Laddie, I'm going to try to use my little pointer. Gerald gave this to me. I'm not very good at this. Let's see if I can get... Yeah. The red dot is imperceptible there. Anyhow, <laughs> you see Israel, uh, the nor- ten northern tribes in kind of the brownish color and you see Bethel at the very southern part of that. Uh, just geographically, if you look to the right along the Jordan River, you see Gilgal. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But when Abraham came to the Holy Land and he came to the very center part, he met with God at Bethel. Bethel had a sacred history. Uh, not only for Abraham, but also for Jacob. Jacob encountered God at Bethel when he was fleeing his brother. Samuel goes to Bethel. And so for centuries it would have been a place that people came to, even people took pilgrimages to come to that place to commemorate what God had done in the past. But in the divided kingdom, when Israel broke off from Judah, and Judah contains Jerusalem, the place where Solomon built his temple. Because the ten northern tribes rebelled and they separated and there's rivalry, that King Jeroboam I made places of worship for them. One in Bethel in the southern part and one in Dan in the northern part. And it says in First Kings that he made calves. Ugh. He made a graven image for them to worship in that place. Yes, they were worshiping God, but there was this graven image. And it ought to just be like fingernails on a chalkboard to the Jewish people to say, what do you mean? 
The second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make any graven image. But King Jeroboam had set up these two, I guess, golden calves in Bethel and Dan and the people there worshipped. What I want you to understand, Bethel was an alternate place of worship other than Jerusalem that was not sanctioned by God even though it had a sacred history and it was corrupted by pagan influences. Yes, they worshiped God in that place, but there were some pagan elements. Not only the the image of the calf, but there were other bad things happening there that didn't have anything to do with the one true God. It was compromised by pagan influences. Probably not only true for Bethel, but also for Gilgal. I don't know if you remember Joshua chapter 4, the children of Israel uh, have crossed the Jordan River. God not only parted the Red Sea, but if you read the Old Testament, he also parted, he stopped the Jordan River, and they crossed into the Promised Land uh, during the flood season, and they went into the Promised Land. And you remember what God said in Joshua? He said, I want a man from each tribe to take a stone out of the riverbed, and we're going to erect a commemorative monument on the other side at Gilgal. And when your children ask you in years to come... Daddy, Mama, what do these 12 stones mean? You will tell them the story that the day that God brought us into the promised land, he stopped the Jordan River and we crossed on dry ground. God has given us this ground. Gilgal commemorated that and the people would have gone back. It was a sacred place. It was a place of pilgrimage. They would have gone there to remember what God had done in the past. Hmm. But through the years, it had become surely corrupted with pagan influences. And yes, they were worshiping God, but it was compromised. It was contaminated. It was corrupted by other things, pagan influences that had nothing to do with the worship of the one true God. So the prophet said, come to your holy places. Come to your place of worship and sin. Go to Come to Bethel, go to Gilgal, multiply transgressions, and do all the religious things that God instructed you to do. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Bring your thanksgiving sacrifices and proclaim and announce free will offerings. Do all the religious things that God told you to do. Continue to do those things, but I want you to know it's all an expression of sin and your iniquity and your transgressions and it denotes how you have departed from God. Must have been a shocking message to the people that heard it in Amos' day. And then the, the final part, the sarcastic note at the end, for this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. The implied converse side to this is God does not love this. You're doing all the right things. You're bringing the sacrifices, your tithes, and your offerings. You may love it. God does not. My question that we, I want to ask this morning, why? Why was it that God 
did not approve of them doing the right things. Why was it when they were coming to these places of worship? Now, I understand there is a component of idolatry, and that could be the answer that you come to those places, but there's worship of idols there. There was immorality there, sexual immorality as a part of the, the pagan influence and practices in those places. I understand that. But I believe that God condemns them for their religious practice because, here it is, they had substituted the outward practice of religion for the inward reality. You can write that one in your notes. God did not approve of their very religious lives because they had substituted the outward practice of religion for the inward reality. In short, they were doing the right thing but their heart was not right with God. They had condensed down their faith to the outward practice of religion. And God said, you're simply transgressing You're just sinning when you do these things. Their practice of religion was self-serving. It was not an expression of a heart that had been changed and blessed by God that then was giving that life as an, exp an expression back to God. It was self-serving. And what I mean by that is they were using it for their own means. Another way we might say it is that their religion was self-justifying. They thought, if I do these things, then I'll be right with God. I understand there's some other problems in my life. There's some issues. And there's some other things going on at this place that, that aren't acceptable, but I, I'm, I'm bringing my sacrifices, I'm bringing my tithes, I'm bringing my offerings, I'm doing all the things that God prescribed for me to do, therefore I must be okay with God because I've got a little checklist of things that I can do that if I do those things, then surely I'm acceptable to God. God said, no, mm -mm. doesn't work that way. Their practice of religion was self-serving, it was their way of somehow saying to God, I'm doing the right thing and surely I have to be approved and accepted by you. It was self-justifying that, yeah, there may be some other things in my life that aren't right, but at least I'm doing these things and surely it kind of all evens out. They were practicing religion to make themselves right with God. I've written about this this week in my devotionals in our Ignite 2018 devotionals. As I've talked about 
the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's two different approaches to religion. One that says, I, it's really up to me to do these things so that I can make myself right with God. And you know, humanly, we kind of we get there. That makes sense to us human. It's, it's about what I do. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth of Christianity. Because Christianity is not about us working our way to God. It's about God working his way to us. It's about what God did to reconcile us back to himself, not what we do to make ourselves right with God. Now, little Baptist people, you've heard this all your life. That by grace are you saved through faith. That salvation is a gift that God gives us. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we must accept that gift. I want you to understand, though, that the grace that saves us is also the grace that keeps us. We're not only saved in grace, we live in grace. And I think sometimes our mindset becomes little Baptist people. That somehow, yes, I understand the grace of God saves me, but then I'm going to develop this checklist of what I need to do to continue to be a good little Christian and I'm going to do these things so that I can meet the approval of God and I want you to know that's wrong for salvation that's wrong for the Christian life because God's grace not only saves us it is, it is the grace of God that we live in think about this with me I'm not saved because of my goodness. I'm saved because I accepted Jesus' goodness and his grace and his sacrifice for me on the cross. What happened in our lives? How was, the, how was grace bestowed upon us? We heard the gospel message. God opened up my heart. I believed. For by grace are you saved through faith. I received that word. And what happened? God came in to change us. The same thing happens in the Christian life. It's supposed to happen on a daily basis that God speaks to me and I hear his voice and I respond. And when I respond, he comes in to make a change in my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're saved by grace, but sometimes we default to works after that and say, well, it's about me doing these things. And I'm telling you, you may be a pretty person and you may do a pretty good job of changing your life but you're so limited I'm so limited I need God to come into my life how does God come into my life I respond to his voice and I open up my heart and I don't understand the mystery of it all but he begins to do a work of grace in my life that he changes me from the inside and that's the way it's supposed to happen in the Christian life he changes us on the he changes us on the inside, and then our life is an outward expression of that. Does that make sense? But this is what happens in time. Those outward expressions 
that came from the very core of our being because of the grace and the mercy and the work of grace that God had done in our life. That in time, our hearts began to drift from Him. And we continue to do all the things that once flowed naturally from our inner transformed being. And we continue to do those things even though our hearts are not there, but our hearts have drifted away from God. And we continue to do those works, those good works, and we begin to use it as a way of proving to ourselves and maybe those around us that I'm a good little Christian. And we do a little check list of things that I do to prove that I'm, I'm right with God. That's what the people were doing in Amos' day. And there was blatant sin in their lives. But they said, but you know what? I'm still going to Bethel. I'm still going to Gilgal. I'm taking my offerings. I'm doing all those things. But God said, it's not right because your hearts have drifted from me. I wrote about this in my devotionals this week, but for the, <laughs> the classic example was, were the Pharisees in Jesus' day who had an outward appearance religion of religion, but Jesus just said over and over, your hearts are not right with God. You have the outward expression of religion. He would say to the people, do what the Pharisees tell you to do, but don't look to their heart because their hearts aren't right. Not what they say. Somehow, we develop a checklist of good things that we do to somehow make up for other things in our life that we know are not right. There were some horrible things happening in Amos' day, but the, continu the people continued to be extremely religious. Somehow as a way of justifying themselves before God. Mm. Um, my, my statement, and I want to close with this. Um, can we put my one my series point? Um, my in all of these sermons, the one truth that ties all of these messages together is this one truth: our spiritual vitality is dependent upon times of renewal. Times of renewal are essential um, because our hearts tend to drift away from God. And for many people, we continue to do the religious activity but our perspective of that religious activity changed once it was an expression of a heart that had been changed by God. But when our hearts drift from Him, we continue to do those religious things as a way of justifying ourselves before God. And so times of renewal are critical because times of renewal call us back to an examination of our hearts.
And it is in our heart that God needs to do a work inside of us. How does God change us on the inside? It is a work of grace when we respond to his voice and whatever that is in our life when we hear the voice of God and we respond then we open up our heart for God to come in and God to do a work of grace and to change us or to restore us to back where we needed to be. And when he does that, then the life flows out of that heart. And so these messages are not about <laughs> just getting right. But the title of the message is Get Real, which means get honest before God to say, God, what, what is the condition of my heart? And you go, I can't change my heart. And I'm telling you today, that's all right. I don't expect you to change your heart. I expect God to change your heart. And this is how I know that God works. When I respond to his voice, then God comes in and he does a work of grace. You cannot change your life. And if you can, it is simply your work. And it's not going to be acceptable to God. The only way we can be right is for God to change us. And when he changes us, then to change our lives as an outflow of that life that has been filled with him. Amen? Amen. I can preach more. Do you have it? You got it? David Shaw, you got it? Amen? All right. If you'll stand with me this, this morning. Father, today we ask that you would um, do what only you can do. Father, I pray that you would make your voice clear. And Father, I pray for us that we would receive and we would respond to that voice and that you would do what only you can do. So we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Faithfulness Here in your hands This is my confidence You never Come to